If you want this podcast free of ads, follow us now on patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once, it's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. What in the world is happening on Wall Street? Economic indicators. Who knows where this is going to end up? To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. I'm just giggling here with John. We're talking about the great Morrissey track, Roy's Keen. Go on! Isn't it great? <laughs> it is great. It's great. It's so... I'm just not a fan of Morrissey, but that's a good track. Yeah, it is a good track. Morrissey and Keen together. You have to be a fan of, you have to be a fan of Morrissey. <laughs> no. You have to be. He's a miserable git. Well, he's also a man you supporter. Yeah. That's not welcome around here. But the Roy's Keane is just great. I actually wonder, is there any other great tunes about footballers? footballers. Wasn't there a, what was that Chelsea player, Peter? Osgood. Peter Osgood. Oh, yeah. He scored against Leeds in the uh, 1970s. Oh, he was my brother's hero. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was, he was a demon in our house. <laughs> His name was Muck. Anyway, what's the crack, my man? It's all good. It's all good. Listen, there's loads of stuff happening this I week. I know. We're blessed. We're blessed. And <laughs> you know who's back? Blessed. Do you know who's back? Tarquin. Tarquin's back. He's in the- <laughs> oh, here he goes. No mandatory quarantine for Tarquin. <laughs> and he's now, Tarquin is going to broker the deal between KBC and Bank of Ireland to totally stitch up the Irish banking market. Yeah. Now that's what's going to happen. Explain this to me. What's happening? Okay, so what is happening is the calcification of the Irish banking market is now complete. Okay. Right. That's what's happening. There will be two banks, in effect, Bank of Ireland and AIB. AIB took over, as we know, Ulster Bank, not that long ago, in mm-hmm. the West Lower. Remember, there was, who was, there was Tarquin, of course, he's actually up the bar now. Yeah. Tarquin gets a few points. A few points there. Yeah, and there's Mick, Pat, Anton. And there's Barry. Barry from PTSB, yeah. which obviously sounds like some sort of trauma yeah, experience. <laughs> Did you need some cream for it? Yeah, exactly, right? And the lads are orchestrating the deal, right? And now, of course, we have Bank of Ireland has come in and it's going to buy KBC. Now, what that means is that there will be no competition in the Irish banking market at all. It will be a duopoly. Now, what it means for punters is that the rate of interest that is going to be charged in Ireland, the mortgage rate, which is already the highest in Europe, will go yet higher. That's the first thing. Oh, man. The second thing is Ireland will have gone from a situation where we were coming down with banks before 2008. Too many banks lending too much money to too many people. Now we will have too few banks, probably not lending enough. So all economies need a vibrant banking system. Yeah, right. yeah. That is the essential lubricant of the economy because the banking system is what pushes 
money around. It's like it's like the heart of the of of the of the system. Of course, yeah. And if your banking system is calcified, you've almost it's almost like a hardening of the arteries, right? You've mm. actually so it doesn't matter how we much money we need some statins in the banking system. We need some statins and high blood pressure and all all our carry on. But you know what we need, John. So what happens is it doesn't matter how much money the ECB prints, if so imagine the ECB printing like a massive big hose of money. Right? Well, so they did. Yeah, but the problem is every country, so there's a big hose coming out from the ECB yeah. of money, right? And every country has their own little hoses, right? Right. But our hose is just a trickle. Yeah. Right? And so the, what there's the, a kink in the pipe. There's a kink in the pipe, and it's, it's the banking system here is going to end up not being willing or able to lend out. So what they're going to do is they will charge higher interest rates. So, and again, what it is, John, this is another disaster for millennials because millennials need finance mm-hmm. in order to finance mainly their house purchasing. Mm. And it's going to just cause that finance to be much, much less available to them. Well, the, the, the question then surely is, number one, what's Pascal and the government right. doing? And what's the central well, bank doing? This is the whole thing. So let's look at the detail, right? KBC is a bank that had loads and loads of loans and not enough deposits here, right? Mm. It had about 10 billion of loans and about 5 billion of deposits. So it was being financed by the head office in Belgium. That's the first thing, right? Bank of Ireland needed to respond to AIB because AIB just bought Ulster, right? So Mm. Bank of Ireland said, we've got to go do something, right? And then, of course, what happens is the central bank now has presided over, like the job of the central bank Okay, there are many jobs at the central bank, but one of the main jobs is to make sure that we have a competitive banking system. Yeah. So the question must be asked, what is the central bank doing? What is their strategy to make Irish banking competitive? What are they going to, are they, are they even asking themselves that in the last two months, two major banks pulled out of the country? Yeah. Ulster Bank and KBC, they've left. Yeah. Why? If Irish interest rates are high, it means this place is more profitable. So why are banks leaving? And what's the central bank going to do about it? Because the central bank has said nothing at all. Mm. It says nothing about monetary policy, even though it should implement monetary policy here. It says nothing about the banking system. It says nothing about regulation. And then, back to our friend Davies, it says nothing to see here. Yeah. When we know a fraud was committed, the central bank said nothing to see. And as Bill Black said, it's not their job to say nothing to see here. That's the prosecutor's job. Yeah, it's yeah, not the yeah. central bank's job. Central bank is to say, this happened. Then you give that to the DPP and the DPP say, okay, it is or it is not a crime. So here we have the central bank saying, we saw this happening. We know it's fraud, but we've decided it's not a crime. Do you see your man Magaluf? Yeah. Magaluf. I call him Magaluf. Have you ever been to Magaluf? No, but my daughter has, you know, on the... On the, uh, the leave insert. The leave insert. She hated it, actually. Really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, it sounds very dodgy. Yeah. Sounds dodgy. What was our version of Magaluf? Cortan. It was. It was. It was. Pretty spay. Kilmockridge. Oh, God, I'm traumatised by Kilmockridge. 1980s Kilmockridge. Yeah. Oh, man. Anyway. anyway right. <laughs> get off that. Get off that. My head is a marley. So what we have is a central bank which is not doing its job. Mm. And in this regard, I feel sorry for Pascal Donoghue, because he's the Minister of Finance, right? But his job is not to actually look after the banking system, but it's to, it's to face down the central bank. They're doing right. nothing. Yeah. What it means for people is that there will be less choice in banking. Now, the other thing we could look at, John, 
is that long term, long term, it's quite clear that banks, as presently constituted, do not have a future. If you, you, you mentioned your kids. What do you mean? You, you mentioned your kids. My kids just use Revolut. They yeah, don't use yeah, yeah. banks. They don't use banks, right? And also, what is going to happen is the providers of loans, I think, will be in the future very different to the providers of deposits. So the safe deposit, right, which is what banks use as a function on one side of the balance sheet, and the loans, which are their assets on the other side, I think will separate eventually. And what you will get is you will get engineers, not bankers, providing loans based on algorithms and based on data about your own creditworthiness and the creditworthiness of the business, right? And then what you'll get is a very dull business, which is basically, where do you put your money? Where Mm. do you keep your deposits? And that is what the future is all about, I think. And data is changing that. Technology is changing that. But right now, what I fear is that Ireland will end up with an external part of the economy, right? The multinationals, small businesses, trading, exporting, et cetera, right? Yeah. Being hyper-competitive and being able to play a role in the real, in the real world. Mm. But a domestic economy, and by that I mean your public sector, your banking sector, which is now public sector, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Your housing market, this sort of areas, our general internal market here, being characterized by insiders who will do anything in the next 10 years to defend their patch. And the difference between the external side of the economy, the trading side, and the non-traded side is going to get bigger and bigger. And that, I believe, could ultimately be really detrimental for the economy. And that's why this is so Crucial. It's a funny thing is when you look at economics, John, it's like any story. You can pick moments where things went wrong. Yeah. You know, you say, that's the moment. That was right? the key bit, yeah. And the when I look point. at this consolidation, what I would prefer to call it calcification. Yeah. Which is what happens to old lads like us when our bones <laughs> right, get all get all sore, right? <laughs> when I prefer it's the calcification of the banking sector and the splendid insiderdom of the West Lower where they're stitching up the banking system. Nobody in the Irish banking system wants foreign competition because foreign competition will bring down interest rates and it will play into the hands of the millennials who need an efficient banking system. What we have, banking for the middle-aged, voting for middle-aged parties, voting for a middle-aged government and stitching up the economy in their interests. But isn't that kind of a... That kind of strikes me as a bit of a risky strategy, long-term-wise. Yeah. You know, I mean, the last election showed us the shift and where the shift is happening. Millennials are shifting towards the likes of Sinn Féin. No, they've shifted. They've gone. Yeah. So if you're you're looking at who votes for Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil, it's not only the over 40s, it's increasingly the over 55s. Yeah. Right? That's where their power is. Mm. It's interesting to look at economics and politics through the prism of demography. Now, you would think that the future of Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael is the youth, because the future of any party is the youth, right? The future of anything, any product. If you're not selling to young people, if you're not getting your message across to young people, they're not reacting to you, then you've lost the game. Yeah. But what I see all the time now is political parties who are in power in Ireland seem to me to be doubling down on their own constituency. So all these things, so for example, like this banking calcification is going to 
profoundly penalize younger people who are looking for financial options. Yeah, that are already under pressure. All of the, yeah, look, and you know, and as we think, I mean, I, by the way, I was looking at the housing market again this week. Mm. This buyer strike is by far and away the only idea. You've got to get out of this. I mean, there's dross being sold. Yeah. There's dross, like the quality is appalling. Yeah. And we know yeah. that the quality is going to get better when the construction industry goes back. And mm. we know that when the market can do, gets back, the quality got better. I mean, you would want to be miles away from this market, you know, on the buyer strike. But what is interesting is the fact that at every juncture, this government seems to support the middle-aged and older. And that would appear to me to be sort of a clinging on to power strategy, which has no future. Because if you lose the youth, you're gone. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. That is one of my favourite national anthems. Well, it's coming up to the 9th of May. 9th of May is Victory Day for the Russians in the right. Second World War. This is when they parade all the old veterans in Red Square. Red Square with all the guys yeah, on, so you, uh, up there and so Khrushchev and yeah, those yeah, brilliant pictures. Criminology. Who's yeah. next? Who's next? So you've got the May Day, of course, is the Soviet yeah. for the workers. The 9th of May is the Victory in Europe Day yeah. for the, for the, the I Russian love those shots because they're always so atmospheric. Yeah. But come here. Do, do you know that they got a big machine that used to blow clouds away? What? Really? <laughs> I love this, isn't it? The really? Russians. Yeah, 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 yeah. You're, you're, like a big fan? Like a big fan. So there'd be always blue skies on May Day. No way. I swear to Jesus. I know. Yes. Really? Yes. <laughs> oh, I'm going to have to look into that. Yeah, yeah go for it. <laughs> but, okay. Because you know I spent loads of time yeah, there. Yeah, you did. Great, you yeah. spent quite a bit of time. Yeah, as yeah. A... I, we'll talk about that in a while. How's your Russian these days? That's not good. Plocha. In shot. <laughs> <laughs> That's all you need. <laughs> but come here to me this week again. You know, we were talking there about clinging on to power. 
In Ireland, yeah. yeah. In Ireland. Yes, yes. But the same kind of thing is going on in Russia. Now, I've been watching the Russian troops, two armies. You're like the Skibbereen Eagle, John. Do you remember <laughs> that? Skibbereen Eagle, which, which was a newspaper in Skibbereen. And uh, <laughs> it warned the Russian Tsar that, Tsar, be aware, the Skibbereen Eagle has its eye on you. <laughs> It was during one of these Russian crises. Really? Yeah. It's like, now, now, and the Tsar was going to say, oh man, the Skibbereen Eagle has <laughs> the a chance. Skibbereen are onto us. <laughs> That's another one I'm going to have to look up. But so they'd be building up troops on the Ukrainian border. Oh yeah. What's going on? What's, and, what's Biden, the- and Biden has slapped sanctions on them. Exactly. So the relationship between America and Russia is deteriorating very, very rapidly. And, you know, years ago when I went, to Russia, right? So I went to Russia in 1990 to learn Russian years and years ago. Mm. And I arrived in this small village called Novi Ruza. So it was Novi Ruza and Stari Ruza. Novi mm. means new and Stari means old. Okay. <laughs> it's pretty simple. It's pretty simple, right? <laughs> and I was in Stari Ruza, which was old. So it was a really sort of rickety sort of place, right? And there were all these babushkas, right? And they'd be cleaning, they'd be kind of like Soviet ones, cleaning the, cleaning the streets. What, or sorry, what is a babushka? A babushka is, is a grandmother in Russian. Oh, okay. right. Okay. Because so, when you say that, I just think of Kate Bush. Well, there you go. You think of Kate Bush all the time, John, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> but so a babushka is, is a matrushka as a mother and a babushka is, is a granny, right? right. And <laughs> I'm learning a lot today. <laughs> and when I arrived, so I arrived in this place. And again, the other weird, weird thing is uh, Russians swap H's for G's, right? Right. So what we say in H, they have a G instead, right? Okay. It's the way, the way it sounds. So they all these. So me goal. Yeah. Where do me goal? It's all these owl ones. I would be walking on the street. And the yeah. ul, and just so, an ulitsa is a street. Right. Okay, so okay. I'd be walking on the ulitsa, and all these owls ones would refer to me, Strasvitya, which is, how are you, Gitler? Right. And I kept looking, what? They were calling me Gitler, Hitler. Because the last Westerners <laughs> that these women had ever seen was Hitler's army running away. In 1942, because it was 50 miles to the west of Moscow, right? Right. And of course, the, the Germans laid siege to Moscow. Yeah. And then yeah. when the Russians turned the whole thing around, the Germans panicked. And there was a really disorderly retreat. And apparently, Hitler's army, for those old ones, were full of red-haired blokes. The last, red hair? Yeah. What, what was the red hair? They were Germans. They were Germans. They were German kids. And as far as the Russians were, they were they had red hair. Right. Which is quite popular okay. in Germany. And so I arrive in 40 years later. They haven't seen a <laughs> Westerner since then. And as far as they were concerned, I was Hitler. I was, I was a Nazi. And, but it was um, this place is really full of Russian history, right? Yeah. So it's right beside a place called Borodino. Borodino is where in 1812, Napoleon got his arse whipped. Right. Oh, so you right. can imagine yeah, yeah, the yeah. grand army, this big yeah, Republican yeah. army, and they get as far as Borodino, just to the west of Moscow, and the Russians outfox them, and then suddenly they have to retreat. So it's amazing. It's full of military history, this neck of the woods. Mm. But when you live amongst the Russians, and when you live with Russian families, and when you talk to them, and when you when you begin to try and understand them, you realize that their relationship with the West is really bizarre. On the one hand, Russians will tell you, look, we were sold in the Cold War that the Russians were always the aggressor. That was the general thing. And they will say, well, hold on a second. You guys invaded us twice, Napoleon and Hitler. You Western Europeans, we never invaded you. We we created a buffer zone. This is what they'd say to you on the Warsaw Pact, simply to protect us against you guys who every hundred years decide to have a pop at us, right? Yes, for (laughs) sure. It is a fair point, right? And of course, they feel very, very proud of the fact that the West has never, ever won. Yeah. 
They push them back every time. Yeah, they push them back. And so much so that the Russians sometimes can't understand why the West ever invaded. There's a great piece, I tell you, in a book, Anthony Beaver, which is who is an English historian, has an amazing book called Berlin. And it's about the battle for Berlin in 1945. But the one of the extraordinary little revelations was the Russian troops, the Red Army, when they came into Germany, right? And they saw all these beautiful villages and these gorgeous houses and these tree-lined. Because mm. if you if you go to into Prussia, what was Prussia, it's yeah. unbelievably beautiful, right? And the Russians were looking at this and they said, hold on, these Germans are really rich. What were they doing in Russia? The Russians couldn't understand why you would invade them because they were so poor yeah. and the Germans are so rich. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. in their heads is a totally different worldview of, of us, right? And now, and you know you know all the stuff about Peter the Great going to, we, we talked about it before. Yeah. But so the Russians yeah. have always wanted to go to the West to learn, always. So when Peter the Great went, you know, did I tell you about Peter the Great? He was six foot eight, John, at a time when the Jeez. average European was five foot five. Right? Think about it, he was a monster, right? And he had a facial tick, right? And he was into all sorts of mad stuff. He loved cutting up bodies. What? He, what? Was, he was totally into what? biology. He was totally into right. how the body works. Like He was a really unusual guy. Really, really unusual. Yeah. A monster. A monster of a man. Like a real crazy. Like and was he, was he kind of seen as that? How was he treated? He was a complete monster. I mean, and they, they total, saw him as a, as a, total alcoholic. He used right. to get gargled all the time. But he was what they called, he was autodidactic. He was self-taught. It's very clever. Right. And what he... Autodidactic. That's a great word. That's a good word, isn't it? Yeah. Go on, go on, go on. The shite that we come out in this <laughs> podcast. But I tell you, in about 1878, maybe 1880, a fella comes back to Moscow with a sextant. You know those things to yeah. work for navigation? Yeah, 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 yeah. And Peter the Great was obsessed with this. But if you think where Moscow is, right? Moscow's hundreds of miles from the sea. So mm. the Russians had no navy. Right? Yeah, yeah, they're like, yeah. They're like, so they had no idea. They had no idea what this this whole thing. And he got became obsessed. He was obsessed with technology, and he came, became obsessed with this. And he asked some of the court, "Does anyone understand how this thing works?" And they said, "Ah, there was a German ghetto in Moscow. So the way the Russians used to trade with the West is they'd bring merchants in, and they'd allow you live in Moscow, but you couldn't trade with you couldn't talk to Russians. So there was a German ghetto, and in the German ghetto lived Swedes, Dutch, and Germans. Right? What were they doing there? They were selling stuff. Right. They were selling, so they'd be like agents, like right. Okay, yeah. Be like kind of Dubai now, you know, even all these like expats, right? Mm. But Peter <laughs> the Great loved the German ghetto because he could go and get rat arse there, right, with right. the Germans, right, and drink. And somebody said to him, "Look, uh, there's a Dutch man there understands how to use this machine," and he became obsessed with Holland and became obsessed with the Navy. And that's when he went to Amsterdam. That's when he went to Amsterdam. Right, So gotcha. he, he said, what is this place, Holland? And they said, this is the richest place in the world. And mm. he said, that's where he went to Amsterdam. You should imagine when he arrived in Amsterdam, this monster yeah. arrives, right? And think about it. This is the man who owned one-sixth of the entire world's landmass. He owned it himself. Because the Romanos owned it. They, yeah. they owned everything, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And wow. he, he worked as a carpenter. He worked as a carpenter in Amsterdam, but went back and built St. Petersburg yeah. based on Amsterdam. Yeah. So they've always wanted to go to the West. They've always had this weird view of the West. And right now, right now, with Biden turning the screw a little bit on them, this will impact psychologically on Russians because they want to be part of our world. Even though when you talk to them, they're very, very proud. And if you mm, look at, mm. even if you look at Pushkin and all the great Russians, there's, there's always a battle in Russia between what they call the soul of Russia, which is the Slavic homeland. Yeah. Russia as the motherland of the Slavs. And then this 
always Occidental sort of dragged towards the West, that we should be more Western. And yeah. at the heart of all Russians, when you talk to them, is this conflict. Are we Eastern, Orthodox, Slavic, or are we European, Western? And that's what, you know, we look at all their history is based on this conflict. My contact with Russians and Ukrainians was in the BBC World Service. Did you work there? Yes, I did. Every time. <laughs> uh, but uh, so I worked in the Eurasia section, which included both Russia and, and Ukraine. But in 2004, there was an election, a Ukrainian election. And when you did the, the breakfast show, Ukrainian breakfast show, which is five in the morning to six, whatever, every morning they would have another candidate, you know, quiz them or whatever. Yeah, 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 so, yeah. so we're doing the show and then we throw over to the Kiev Bureau yeah. and Alexander would have whoever in. And he started interviewing this guy. I can't remember his name. And Alexander says, so uh, tell us about what you're going to do with the health system or whatever it was. And he started answering in Russian. And Alexander said, uh, hang on a second. Ukrainian election, Ukrainian show. Would you mind speaking Ukrainian? And he goes, listen, when I'm elected, I'll speak Ukrainian during office hours only. <laughs> Are you serious? Yeah. And of course, he didn't win. But of course, a month later, when the elections happened, it was followed very quickly by the Orange Revolution. Yeah. And the whole place went up in flames, followed a few years later by Crimea. And or as the Russians say, Nasha Krim. Nah, there Our you go. Crimea. Yeah, 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 yeah. Now, it's interesting. It's all different. It's funny you talk about Crimea because, so Peter the Great mm. starts the expansion of Russia. Yeah. This is where we start our yeah. discussion, right? He starts the expansion. Catherine the Great. Catherine the Great comes after Peter the Great. She was actually a German princess, right? She wasn't a Romanov at all because Germany at the time that was, was like, his missus. No, 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 no. It was his nephew's missus, right? Okay, right, right, right. Germany at the time was like a stud farm for posh people, right? right? <laughs> it was. That's the way you went to find a princess bride and all these little German. That's yeah. what it was. So if you look, if you look at all these crazy families, like the English royal family, it was like a stud yeah, yeah, farm, yeah, a stud farm for posh people, right? <laughs> yeah. They go and find, right? Okay. So Catherine the Great comes in, but she's German. She's got a totally different worldview. And she and her lover, Gregory Potemkin, expand Russia. Mm. And they expanded all over the world. So you end up with this crazy situation where Russia now is totally incongruous. There's 140 million Russians. They own one-eighth of the world's landmass. 110 million of those Russians live in European Russia, basically the Russia that we know. Yeah. So if you look at the map, about one-tenth of the world is occupied by 30 million Russians, right? Or maybe one eleventh of the world. Right? right. And this is what the play is. This is what's going on in Russia right now. Explain so, this one now. So Putin's gang are kleptocrats, right? They would make the West lower blush in terms, <laughs> right? They are stitching up the whole thing. And, and we're talking tens, hundreds of billions of euros they brought, right? Yeah. And they've, they've run out of road. They've run out of road. Okay. okay. There's two or three phases in the Putin years. We don't need to go into it, but basically the first 10 years he was seen as the man to do business with. Yeah. And he was dealing with oligarchs internally, dealing with the West externally. We brought him into the G8. It was G8 plus Russia. And it was a sort of a warm, fuzzy feeling. Mm. Then after 2008, and then he goes for Khodorkovsky. The, the big UCOS guy was an oligarch. Yeah. And that was the test case. Remember, so there's, a, there's a moment you think, okay, that's when they changed. Right. Right? Because basically, Putin is KGB. Yeah. And the KGB guys around Putin 
are the most cynical people in the world. They're trained to be cynics, okay? And then after the 2008 crash, you get a completely different Putin. You get a Putin who can't do business with the West. You get a Putin that the West has falls out with. And yet all those various... Is that because he kind of saw a, a kink in the armor of the West? Yeah, he understood that the West is really cynical, that the West can be bought. Yeah. The Russians understood... But it was also weak because of the, the crash. It was weak because of the crash, but they also understood that you can that the West has great platitudes and says lovely things, but ultimately it doesn't really act. Mm. And the great example of that is how the Russians managed to elbow out the Americans in Syria by yeah. being able yeah, yeah, yeah. and willing to lose troops. So the Russians saw the West as actually being a cynical front that doesn't really have any balls, has principles, but talks about human rights, yeah, won't yeah, do yeah. anything about it, yeah. right? So then suddenly if you're a cynic and you're trained by the KGB, you realize this is open season. Mm. So they've had an open season to rob the country for the last 10 years. But now they're running out of road. Why? Because the Russian economy isn't delivering for the Russian people, as it should have done. Oil prices spiked up years ago, and that was their currency. Yeah. Now also oil prices are still high, but they're not spiking up. So there's no extra juice. Yeah. And they've robbed so much of it. So they're actually stuck now. And of course, the most recent thing that really freaked them out is Navalny, right? Navalny, yeah. they missed Putin and his guys missed the youth revolution. That was the Navalny revolution this year. They missed it completely. Yeah. So Russia's divided between the young and the old. The old support Putin, to say the over 50s, yeah. and the young can't stand oh, well, it. Demographically wise, what is the split, do you reckon? Well, it's like, it's like in most countries. The problem with Russia was that after the end of the Soviet Union, Russians stopped having babies. And in yeah. fact, all East Europeans stopped having babies. And it's a very, very interesting demographic reaction to trauma. So what you find, people yeah. in the West have babies in countries that they feel are secure. Yeah, people of course. People don't yeah. have yeah. babies in countries. It's an extraordinary thing. Yeah. And the Russians have stopped having, having kids. But still, of course, there's a massive, massive youth population. Amazingly, 53% of Russian graduates want to emigrate. 53%. Wow. And probably the most wasteful thing a country can ever do is allow its young people emigrate. Well, yeah. we, we've talked about this before. Yeah, absolutely. It costs about a million dollars to educate a person in the West from the very first day they go into school to the day they end, let's say, in graduate college, if you do mm. it all the way through, right? So if you are allowing people to emigrate, it's the most wasteful thing you can do because you're actually investing in people and then they go somewhere else. Yeah. And the Russians have been emigrating in huge numbers since... Well, since the fall of the Berlin Wall. The Berlin Wall was like the floodgates just opened then. Yeah, the floodgates just opened. And if you go to Brighton Beach in uh, in the States, yeah. it's just all Russian, all Russian. Yeah. You know, you see the, but to come back, so here's the play for Putin, right? Is that Putin understands that the Americans are now going into a proper Cold War with the Chinese. Yeah. That China is the enemy. Yeah. Putin also needs forgiveness from the West from having robbed his own country. So like a sort of spoiled child, what Putin needs, he needs the West to get to the table. The yeah. summit that Joe Biden's talking about. Yeah. So how does he do this? He needs to get noticed. How does he do this? He rattles sabers in Ukraine. So he makes trouble in Ukraine in order to get to the table. So create a problem and then solve the problem. Create a problem, but then propose the following. So let's go back to the demography, right? Mm. right? Look at Siberia. Siberia is where all the minerals are. Yeah. 
There's 30 million people in what looks like, I don't know the maths, it's maybe a tenth, it's maybe a twelfth of the world's landmass, right? The only people who are repopulating Siberia are Chinese immigrants. So the Chinese okay. strategy, the Chinese strategy is to blindside the Russians and the West in Siberia. This is the long-term play. Yeah. And of course, therefore, the Russian strategy is, and the Putin strategy. So imagine Putin's like a cornered regime. They've nowhere to go. Yeah. They've got a youth rebellion coming up. They know if this youth rebellion wins, they will all be put in prison. They will all be put in prison, right? right? Yeah. For wholesale kleptocracy, right? Yeah. So what they're doing now, they're doubling down on spending on the military and the police in Russia, but they also need an exit strategy. And the exit strategy they are going to play is they need the West to kind of bring them back into the fold, to go back to that period in 2005, 2006, mm. when they were in the G7. Yeah, and the yeah. West brought them back in. But what can they sell the West to do that? What they can sell the West is an alliance against China in Siberia. Because what America is terrified of is the Chinese incursion into Siberia. Because again, think about it. Go back to Peter the Great, right? Mm. Russia is an incongruous concept. It's so big. It's yeah. got 14 time zones. Yeah. Yeah, it <laughs> it's does. so big. So Vladivostok yeah. is beside Japan. Yes, yeah, yeah, right? yeah. It's beside Japan. And the, the territory that is up for grabs is Siberia because there's only 30 so, million people living there. So, so, but you're saying that there's a lot of Chinese immigrants moving into Siberia and... Eastern Russia. It's called Chinese crawl. The Russians call it Chinese crawl. How are they moving in? They're starting to set up little trading outposts and they're, they're repopulating the towns on the Chinese border beside right. Russia. And that's freaking the Russians out. Right. Okay. Because ultimately the Russians cannot maintain this empire. That's the problem. See, it's interesting because I would have always thought that the China and Russia relations were pretty solid. They're, and they're in each other's pockets. China and Russia, obviously in the Soviet period, didn't like each other for a while, then mm. they liked each other, et cetera. Mm. Mm. As long as the common enemy was America, yeah. they were together. But now, what the Russians, the Russians... It's still the same enemy, though, America and the West. They understand, they understand, the Russians now understand that maybe the enemy is China because Putin needs to be forgiven. Putin and his gang are trying to figure out how do we stay in power for the next 20 years. Right. We've got this revolution going on around Navalny. We've lost the youth here, yeah. right? We've robbed the country, but we have nuclear power, loads of it. And we have this card to play, which is an alliance, a tacit alliance with the West against China in Siberia. Right. And this is the background noise to what Putin is doing in Ukraine. That's only a sideshow. It's actually to get the West back to the table and Biden yeah. has already bitten. Yeah. Because he's already said we're going to have a summit with the Russians in the next couple of months. Can you see, this actually makes a huge amount of sense in the way Russia's relationship with Trump, because they could play Trump easy enough, even though, you know. Water sports and things like that. that he, was, <laughs> he was involved in in some yeah. hotel room. But they had him. They had him. And they could, they could easily play him. And well, he was a busy fool. He was a useful, a useful fool That's for the Russians, I mean. yeah. right? But now they understand that the Americans are trying to reconstitute the world into an us and them. Right? If you look at everything Biden's doing, yeah. but Biden has already called Putin a killer. 
Joe Biden, the American president, mm. described the Russian president as a killer. So Putin has nowhere to go. So Putin's trapped. He's cornered, yeah. right? And what card can he play? The only card he can play is some sort of proximity to the West and reimagine the relationship with the West as one of mutual interest against China. And therefore, Siberia is the new theater for the Russians and the Americans against the Chinese. Right. Because Russia, again, is geographically incongruous, right? It's an mm. incongruous empire. And that empire was started by our good friend, Peter the Great and Catherine the Great. And in the old days, Russia's whole existence was dominated by a hatred of the Ottoman Turks. That's all Russia's move to the south Okay, oh, yeah. Okay. was against the Ottoman Turks. Yeah. And the legacy of that is the Caucasus. So the Caucasus is that region of Chechnya and all that part mm. of the Dagestan, Chechnya, all the places. Yeah. So basically you have Russia, Iran, and Turkey involved in an economic, political, and religious struggle. 15% of Russians, Russia's a multi-ethnic state. 15% yeah. of Russians are Muslims. Well, 15, it's so bloody big that it's bound to be. Yeah, but yeah. The, the Muslim population is by far and away the fastest rising one. Right? So right, okay. all southern Russia is Muslim, right? All that Caucasus area. Yeah. And so what you see, therefore, is Putin is blindsided down in the Caucasus because he has to keep his eye there, right? He has this problem with Crimea. By the way, it was Potemkin who was Catherine the Great's lover. And they really were in love. If you read about them, they, they had a really, really nice love affair. Yeah, right, yeah, yeah. She really loved him. And they wrote all these letters together and they were really cute together. I was reading a book on the Romanovs by a fellow called Seabag Montefiore. And it's lovely. The love letters of Catherine the Great to Potemkin are, are, are they're really gorgeous, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he, he actually calls, you know the city Sevastopol? Yeah. That means August. Seva is August, right? Right. So it means August, August city. And apparently that's what the month their affair was consummated. Ooh. Isn't that lovely? Wow. Imagine naming a city. Anyway, yeah. there you go, right? But <laughs> that's the Crimea thing. So they, the Russians took over Crimea in like 1780 or something. They've been there a long, long time. Mm. But so think about it. All Putin's operations in, for example, Syria, yeah. right, are all nothing to do with Syria and the Middle East, even though the Russians have elbowed out the Americans there. Yeah. It's to do with this theater of operation in the Caucasus, right? So what they want to do is they want to unbalance Turkey, right? Because Turkey is their big enemy in the Caucasus. Right. And of course, Turkey is Islamic. It's a mm. Muslim country, mm. right? So that's that's one problem for Putin. Yeah. He that's a big problem because- Massive problem. Because he, he's bolstering his power as well. And, um, Erdogan. The, and, the Chir- and the Chechens have Putin by the balls because they are the incendiary yeah. crowd down there. So- He's got the problem in the Caucasus. He's got the Crimea, which is very popular in Russia. They call yeah. it Nasha Krim, our Crimea, right? Yeah. He needs to keep the West on its toes in Ukraine, worried, anxious, mm. right? Underneath it, he has robbed the country and he knows this and they know it. Mm. Navalny blindsided him completely because Navalny was a youth revolution that the establishment didn't see at all, didn't see it coming at all, which is why they will probably let Navalny, Navalny die in prison because yeah. they're, they're so cynical, right? And that will be the spark. They're so cynical. Mm. And before all this happens, because we're talking about, that's what we're talking about is the potential implosion of Russia, yeah. right? So before all this happens, they have to play one card to get out of jail. The card they're going to play is the anti-Chinese card. 
because they know that the Americans have completely shifted on China. As we were talking about Taiwan the other day, right? Yeah. The Americans have gone into a much more aggressive, and the Americans have now realized that's the Cold War. It's between China and America. And of course, Biden is old school American State Department, right? And the American State, whereas Trump was just this crazy on his tart, right? Yeah. Okay, but Biden's listening to, to all CIA and all these people, right? Mm. So they've understood this. So why now? Why is Putin doing everything now? Because he needs to get the attention to get the, to the table. Yeah. And in order to get to the table, he has to have something to sell the Americans, right? Yeah. And what he's going to sell them is an alliance against China. And the weakest, you know the, the, this expression, the, the chain is only as strong as the weakest, weakest link. link. Yeah. And the weakest link is Siberia because there's not enough Russians there to defend it. That's really interesting. And right yeah. down beside them, they have one and a half billion Chinese people. One and a half billion versus yeah. 30 million Russians. Yeah. And that's where all the goodies are. That's where all the ore, that's where all the... And again, you forget that Russia is a nuclear power. That's the big, that's the big wild card. Right. Is that either the West supports Putin or Putin, the end of Putin is the end of Russia that it disintegrates into various different... Well, it could Republicans. be a big land grab. If, It'll be if, a massive land grab, yeah, right? So if, think about it. And all these republics in Russia have nuclear power. They've, they're armed with nuclear warheads. Yeah. They've chemical wars. They've everything. Like it's it's a cesspit of armaments. But, okay, one question for you then as well is that the other card that they may play though is gas supply to Germany and to Europe. They're already playing that. They're all, and, and they will continue to do that. Yeah. And again, they know that they have... I mean, basically, Russia keeps European lights on yeah. in the winter. Yeah, 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 yeah. And they also know, and of course, what the Russians have done is the Gerhard Schroeder, the last uh, chancellor of Germany, he's mm. on the board of Gazprom. So what the Russians understand is that- Is he? he? Yes. And all lots of English lords are on the board of all these Russians. The Russians understand wow. Western vanity. Yeah. You know this thing, compromat. This is the Russian idea of diplomacy. It's, I mean, how do I compromise you? Yeah. Right. This is what the Russians have always used, right? So how I compromise you is I bring you into the tent, right? So I give you board positions and I give you money and I give you this and that. And I, I give you hookers that I they give gave you, to the Trump. All, all that stuff. But I compromise you. And then the, so this is the Russians understand that the West is cynical, right? So their cynicism and our cynicism are met and they understand the West can be bought. That's what Putin really figured out. Yeah. You can buy these people off. But wow. now they're running out of road. This yeah. is the thing. Yeah. So what you're saying is, essentially, there's there's two options. Putin stays in power by yeah. way of us forgiving him. Yeah. Or Putin loses power and Russia implodes, which, Jesus, that's, God knows what will happen. That's what I think. That's what I think. So the Putin stays in power, not Putin, but Putin's gang, yeah. right? Yeah, the, yeah, the KGBization of Russia, because they have grabbed all the levers of power. They have everything. They own the media, they own the cops, they own everything, the mm. courts, everything, right? So either they stay in power, and in order for them to stay in power, we have to bequeath, well, not we, the Americans have to allow that to come to pass. It's like almost like a, like a, a papal 
in the Middle Ages, the Middle Ages, the Pope would give anointed you, by the Pope. You know, sell an indulgence, it'd be all yeah, right. Yeah, you know, yeah. it's a sort of it's a very, very Catholic view. Okay, yeah. right? Okay, so imagine, <laughs> Three Marys. imagine your Pope Pius the Second, the fellow who I told you wrote the erotic poetry. Oh yes, yeah, yes, oh, yeah, and yeah. did an alliance with Vlad yeah. the Impaler. Was it, was he fart breath? He was, he was fart. No, he wasn't fart, Brett. He wasn't fart, but came after him. Right. right? Okay. okay. But he, you know, he was the guy who was around when uh, Gutenberg was doing the Bible. Yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Now, so either we do that. So we say to Putin, we will give you a lifeline. And by giving you a lifeline, we have to, well, what are you selling us? And what Putin will say, well, we'll sell you is a deal to keep the Chinese at bay in Siberia. Right. Because the Americans do not want the Chinese getting their hands on any of Russian raw materials. Yeah. Right. So that's the thing. But Russia is demographically compromised up there because there's not enough Russians in that part of the yeah, world. Yeah, right? yeah. So that's the first thing. Jesus, you're not talking flying in American troops there. I'm talking about an alliance between Russia and America that has never happened before. Yeah. And it's between Alaska. Think of where Alaska is. Yeah. No, but what I mean is if if there is a border... No, it wouldn't. It would be just the Americans issue. and the Russians would understand that they have a okay. mutuality of interest. Right, and that would be enough to keep the be, Chinese that at would bay. Keep enough. So basically, yeah. the theatre of geopolitics moves from Western Europe to Alaska. Yeah. Imagine that, just in yeah. your head, right? Sarah Palin would be great. So, I, can, I can see Russia. <laughs> I can see foreign countries, right? And in so doing, you hold your nose and allow the transfer of power from Putin to one of his cronies. Yeah. That's the stability pact idea. Okay. The other one is that all these various centrifugal forces that are pulling Russia apart, whether it's Crimea, whether it's Chechnya, whether it's the Caucasus, whether it's the youth rebellion, whether it's the fact that the youth want to disappear, they want to leave, you know, all these forces that are dragging Russia apart, Mm. okay, they become irresistible. And the system implodes, and Russia has a fall of the Berlin Wall moment, part, Mark II. Yeah, 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 yeah. And yeah. the system collapses. And of course, the European Union doesn't want that because what that means is whole scale migration of Russians into Europe. If Russia collapses, right? If the you system. You get a lot of brain power the, coming in, though. Yeah, but you, get, you just get a lot of people, yeah. right? And then you sift out, which is, you know, but you can imagine this will be wholesale migration of Russians coming west, right? Mm. If, the, if the society implodes, right? So, and societies do implode, and yeah. particularly kleptocracies implode because they're deeply fragile. They're only, Russia is only kept in power by power itself. You know, it's not like, it's not like a country says, well, we've got a constitution that keeps us in power. Power is what gels Russia together. Yeah. And Moscow is the power, right? But if the power in Moscow, as it did in 1917, disappears, yeah, yeah. a vacuum happens, right? And into that vacuum is a vortex of chaos and people migrate. So if you're sitting in Washington, you're thinking, okay, what are my, what are my options here? Mm. And one of my options is an alliance with a kleptocratic government, which is Putin's. And that explains exactly what Putin's doing now. All this saber rattling, all this causing havoc down in Ukraine. It's all to seek attention, to get to the table, to exercise his exit strategy. And that's the only way he has to cling to power. And you know that summit, John, that's going to happen. We could host it. Ireland? Yeah. I mean, Iceland hosted these summits in the past, Finland in the past, Norway in the past. Small countries can host summits. 
And that would be an amazing way for us to reimagine Ireland on the global stage, to say, you know what? We are a safe space for you. You can come here and you can actually do your business. And imagine the soft power we'd get. It would be extraordinary. Yeah. And I can think of it, Ireland is neutral. We don't have any enemies, right? Yeah. We're on the UN Security Council, Yeah. right? We have friends all over the place. I always think neutrality can be either active or passive. Passive neutrality I call sneering neutrality. It's the Irish way. And it's really easy to sit on the ditch and say, I wouldn't do that. Imagine saying, no, we're going to be neutral, but we're going to be actively neutral. Yeah. And we're going to host things and we're going to be part of the conversation. And that's what I think we should do. We should say, post-COVID. Well, I, I was going to say they could negotiate during their mandatory <laughs> quarantine. Exactly. You could do it in, in City Trump's West. <laughs> Can't see it, can you? 